and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Joanne Sweeney, Professor of Law at the U- University of Louisville, Louis D. Brandeis School of Law. We will discuss her Fulbright research on comparative Me Too movements in the U.S. and Europe. So welcome to the show, Joanne. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and uh, congrats on your recent Fulbright. Very Thank cool. You. Um, well, so I was wondering if you could start the interview by talking a little bit, uh, by way of situating listeners in the Me Too movement, by talking a little bit about the origins of that movement in in the United States. Because I think a lot of people have heard about Me Too, but maybe not so many people are aware of how it got started and how it eventually grew into the kind of hashtag meme that it is today. Sure. So um, the Me Too movement, um, the the event that kind of started it all in the United States was the um, allegations that came out about Harvey Weinstein. So um, there was some reporting done on that. And in response, um, Alyssa Milano actually tweeted about it um, and asked, uh, you know, referenced the scandal and then uh, asked women if they had experienced something similar to just respond with me too. Now, um, she did not make up that, uh, that phrase or that concept of women saying me too. It was actually Tarana Burke who started that um, so long ago that she started it on MySpace. So there you go. Uh, how long ago that was. Um, but Alyssa Milano did certainly make it more uh, visible and that's when things really started uh, kind of spiraling uh, about it. And like it went viral very, very quickly. Um, it's, let's see, it was within like 10 days, there were over a million, almost 2 million tweets with that hashtag of me too. And the kinds of tweets that were happening were women literally just saying, and I'm saying women, I'm just going to back up. I'm saying women, um, which is an overstatement and a generalization just for ease of language. But um, I want to acknowledge that not all it's not just women that have suffered harassment and discrimination um, uh, and assault. It's men as well. And particularly um, people who are uh, transitioning or on the gender spectrum are going to be very uh, vulnerable to these kinds uh, to this kind of uh, uh, attack and, and victimization. So I'm saying women. I don't mean it's just women, but it's just easier to say women as a catch-all. So I hope that's, <laughs> that's clear. Um, so it was, yeah, almost 2 million tweets uh, with this Me Too hashtag. And some of them were just Me Too, but some of them women started telling their stories. Um, and they were telling stories of, you know, when they had been uh, attacked or otherwise victimized. And in response, other women uh, or, you know, people reading it would, would tweet their support. And so the, these people you know, doing this hashtag, we're finding a very open, caring environment where they were being believed. Um, and as part of that, um, it encouraged more people to come forward. And with it, it, the result that several very high profile men were uh, brought down, basically. And, um, and that means mostly uh, employment wise. So, you know, a lot of celebrities um, were uh, in particular were brought down. Celebrities and politicians were the major groups. Uh, that where this was most visible. Um, so, you know, Harvey Weinstein is one, but you have Maria Batali and Garrison Keillor, Kevin Spacey, Al Franken, um, you know, the list I could go on and on. The, the, um, the number uh, is quite high. 
Um, and what was interesting to me is that this hashtag didn't just stay in the United States. It went international very quickly. Um, and, and I think there were about uh, 85 countries that had at least a thousand tweets posted with this hashtag um, in that and quickly after it started spreading in the United States. And that mm-hmm. interested me a lot. Hmm. Well, so I feel like a lot of the really kind of high profile successes of the Me Too movement in the United States have been, as you mentioned, like particularly high profile individuals who Mm -hmm. were accused of sexual harassment or sexual violence and subsequently suffered consequences Mm -hmm. because of their behavior. Um, Was the Me Too movement also kind of responding to kind of broader uh, social issues than just these individuals? And, you know, to what extent has it, do you think it's prompted in the United States kind of reflection on or movement on any, um, you know, kind of broader social problems? Yeah, I don't think that the intention of this movement was just to attack a few high profile men. I think that the biggest thing, that the, the biggest purpose of it was just to give initially was just to give women a space to tell their stories and be believed. That is one of the you know major issues. Uh, behind the Me Too movement is women have these stories and they felt like they couldn't tell them because no one would believe them or they would be criticized or retaliated against. And as women were starting to be believed in some very publicly, and that helps that it's in the media and they can see that these men that seemed untouchable are, you know, being punished for their bad behavior. Some of it happening decades ago, um, that it emboldened women to, to tell more and more stories. And, and I think the real value of this movement is for people to see how widespread this is, that basically every woman has a story of how she was mistreated, um, you know, sexually harassed or assaulted. And I think that it's, it is showing us as a society how big of a problem this is. Um, so I think that is the real, the real benefit to it. And like I said, the, the uh, kind of the big media splash uh, on these, some of these men has helped make it more visible. But I think there's been some um, kind of more, you know, not as splashy, but still very important results that there have been, you know, an increase in, um, you know, some women are protesting in different industries like a Ford plant in Chicago, McDonald's uh, has like, there've been protests and class action lawsuits for, you know, um, harassing supervisors being allowed to remain, uh, in, you know, employed in those companies. Um, and there's also actually been some indications that reporting rates, um, and judgments against men accused of either the crimes of sexual assault or even, you know, employment harassment, that there's actually been movement in those areas as well. So there's been increased reporting, more likely convictions and, and more and higher judgments uh, if a case gets to trial um, for like hostile work environment claims, um, that those are that the judgments of uh, amounts have been going up, that women are getting more compensation um, and that the behavior that juries are willing to tolerate uh, has you know gone down, which is very reassuring. Um, these are small, little, you know, small changes, but you can, there's, there's been reporting on it. There's been noticeable changes. 
Mm. Well, so you mentioned that the Me Too hashtag was taken up very quickly in a range of different countries. And I know that your research was focused on sort of investigating, you know, how that happened and what it was a response to and, mm-hmm. and so on in a selection of those countries. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, which countries you were looking at sure. and why and sort of whether, you know, or why that, ha- you know, the uptake was so quick and, you know, did, did you find that it was the same across countries or were there meaningful differences? Absolutely. So um, I started off in Finland because of that's where I, I did my Fulbright. Um, and when I was doing research initially before I even went, I found out, discovered that Finland had its own Me Too movement before the United States had one. Um, it wasn't called Me Too. Um, it was actually called Lappia, which is Finnish for basically it means groper. Um, and so that happened, um, in, I think, was it 2016? Uh, where, remember that, uh, that big scandal, it started in Germany of, um, like New Year's Eve, and there were these reports that a bunch of, um, asylum seekers were gonna just harass a bunch of women. Um, and I think it was mostly in Berlin, but there was some movement there in, in Finland as well. Um, and the Helsinki chief of police, uh, you know, decried this behavior, saying that it's such a shame because we don't have any harassment in Finland otherwise. And uh, women responded with, oh, really? Um, and so that hashtag uh, went viral. Um, and the woman who started it, it went viral so quickly that her Twitter account was shut down because it was so active so quickly. Um, and this is just in Finland. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that the visibility of the U.S. movement definitely had kind of other movements in other countries. But just going to Finland, I realized that, you know, this is something that is not unique to the United States um, and we did not invent anything. Um, so I was interested. I started with Finland and it interested me because it has so such good um, uh statistics on a lot of other aspects of gender equality um, and is considered, you know, it's a Nordic country and it's considered, considered very, um, you know, progressive in that respect. Um, but Finland is really interesting because it has one of the highest rates of domestic violence in the EU, despite having equality and like, um, you know, doing a lot for, uh, you know, maternal care for, uh, pay equality and things like that. So Finland was an enigma to me and I was very interested to see what was going on uh, and why th- that disparity existed and then what happened with its Me Too movements. Um, so that's why I chose Finland initially. And then the other countries I've added so far um, are Portugal and Germany. Um, and partially I added those because I was able to go there and meet with people there and talk to them about their culture and their Me Too movements, um, which was so important for me to really understand what was happening there. Um, so Portugal also interested me because of its history of strong ties to the Catholic Church, because it's you know got a romantic background as romantic culture, and um, you know it has some stereotypes uh, of you know d- gender uh, gender roles um, that don't exist in other parts of Europe. And then Germany, again, was I was able to go there and meet with people. And it has kind of a, what I would consider almost a middle ground between Portugal 
and Finland in terms of strong, you know, stronger gender equality, but still a strong Catholic church uh, and things like that. And uh, what I was not surprised to discover is that uh, there were two movements in and all of these countries um, to varying degrees. And the reason behind the movement was the same for all of them in that in all of these countries, and I'm sorry to say globally, there's the twin issues of sexual assault and harassment being quite prevalent. And yet women are silenced and feel unable to speak about their experiences. And so the Me Too movement helps with women being able to speak about their experiences um, and be believed and listened to and supported. Mm. Well, I feel like from a U.S. perspective, all three of the countries you've 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 studied, as well as many other countries in Europe, sort of have a reputation as you as you uh, identified earlier of having kind of more progressive, more um, kind of uh, women centric like social systems and you know welfare mm-hmm. state. Yep. Did did you find that that was in any way reflected in kind of cultural attitudes towards sexual harassment? Or you know were there were there like particular differences that you saw or were able to sort of identify in your research uh, between sort of what Me Too was reacting to in the United States and what it was reacting to in Europe? Absolutely. Or on the, yeah, okay. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what those differences were and, and you know, why you thought they were important. I mean, the, the, the only way to put it is that there is a, I don't know if the right word is refreshing variety of ways and reasons to silence women and make them not talk about their mistreatment. But these countries have all found a unique path to the same results. Um, so, so for Finland, uh, for example, um, the, the reason why women, it's not talked about the, the idea and why that, you know, the Helsinki chief of beliefs didn't even know it existed um, is uh, some, each country has its unique history and culture that have led to it choosing a certain path uh, towards silencing women. So again, the result is the same, but the path is different. So for Finland, um, it has a history of kind of socialism and class issues, labor issues taking front and center. So the important part in Finland is about women getting equal work and equal pay for work. And so once that happens, they're like, cool, we've solved it. Uh, no, but they believe that. And they also, uh, they believe they have this myth of equality, right? So that's what, once that they solve some of their issues, so women, uh, women are paid the same, uh, for the most part and, you know, have equal opportunity of employment, then, then everything else must be equal, right? And we have some of that in America too, right? So that, you know, now that, you know, we have some, you know, improved conditions for women, then clearly everything's the same now. Uh, you know, women are in, in Congress, so we're, we've solved that, right? Um, and there's also the the myth in Finland of the strong Nordic women, that uh, women are supposed to be able to take care of themselves. Um, and so women feel ashamed when something happens to them that they can't do anything about or that they've been mistreated, and they feel like they're not living up to, you know, their role, which is to be this strong person that basically supports society. It's a very collectivist society as well. So that's Finland. 
Um, Portugal uh, is, you know, kind of this machismo Latin culture background, and it's also dominated by the Catholic Church, which, um, you know, has historically perpetuated silence and subservience of women. So that's the path they've chosen. Um, and then Germany, um, there is, it's interesting, they have this, uh, they also have this um, silence because of the taboo of speaking about it in Germany. You're not supposed to talk about these things in German society about sexual assault or harassment. There's a cartel of silence. And there's also in Germany, which is really interesting, this um, myth of, uh, as Finland has the strong Nordic woman, Germany has the myth of the strong man. And the strong man means that he is aggressive and has these uncontrollable sexual desires, so he can't help himself. So it's very interesting that a strong woman, a woman is strong in Finland, which means she's responsible for herself. And the strong man in Germany means he's not responsible for himself. Um, so that's the difference in culture for each of these countries. And the, you know, the United States has its own issues, you know, that there is this, again, presumption of equality because we've solved so many problems already. Um, that women are really treated as badly, especially compared to other countries. Um, the United States has had, uh, you know, a very tumultuous history with race. And so there's a, a larger focus on racial issues. And I will say for good reason. Um, and there's also United States has a very unique uh, focus on expression that we don't want to limit um, expression. So a lot of the things that are happening in Me Too are, you know, comments made um, like street harassment, cyber harassment. And anytime someone talks about limiting uh, the ability to engage in this kind of behavior, people always get on the, you know, what about my freedom of expression? So that's a unique barrier in the United States. Mm. Well, so in response to this kind of rainbow of flavors of misogyny, <laughs> as it were, mm. um, you know, <laughs> has, has the Me Too movement and its expression in these different countries also taken different forms in response to the kind of different varieties of sort of internalized social and cultural misogyny? So they have had similar um, effects in that in each of these countries, I was able to find instances where, um, and again, it's happening mostly in um, the entertainment industry, um, is that they had similar instances where uh, powerful men are publicly accused and um, and punished, at least, um, you know, with regard to employment. So I want to emphasize that in the vast majority of cases, even the United States, where it's been much bigger, um, 99% of the men that have been called out and accused um, have faced no legal repercussions at all. Uh, they might get fired, they might have projects pulled, but that's as far as we're willing to go, um, you know, with notable exceptions of Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and, and fingers crossed, Kevin Spacey. Um, so we'll see what happens with him. But yeah, so the vast majority, they may get punished in some way, but it's not the law that's coming in to do this work. It is they're being uh, socially reprimanded or, you know, employment wise, so financially kind of punished. Um, and then so there were a few cases. Um, so there were two I found in Finland. Um, and then one in Portugal, which was uh, Christian Ronaldo, 
Uh, but he wasn't even accused of what he did in Portugal. He was accused of what he did in the United States. But he is a very popular uh, footballer in Portugal. So the, the effects are the Me Too movements are certainly smaller in those countries um, and the effects are smaller. Um, and I'm just you know, starting to understand if there have been any kind of broader um, kind of movement, uh, movements that are not as obvious. I can tell you that some of the laws have changed. In Finland, for example, their um, definition of rape involved force or threats, and it, they have now uh, amended uh, that law so that it is uh, rape is now uh, concerned with uh, consent which, you know, it should be. So good job, Finland. Um, but mm. they just changed it <laughs> in response to the uh, in response to the Me Too movement, actually. Mm. Well, what about any pushback to, to Me Too? I mean, has sort of, I, I mean, I know that there's been some kind of resistance among some circles in the United States and kind of foot dragging or reluctance to accept the reality of what's been historically and currently taking place and to resist changes Mm -hmm. that people in the Me Too movement are, are suggesting. Has there been similar pushback in, in the European countries you studied? And if so, kind of what kind of form did it take? Was it similar to the United States or were there meaningful differences? So the major pushback, there's been tons of pushback in the United States, lots of articles and, and um, things written like, has Me Too gone too far? And my answer was always no. Um, but the um, so there's pushback. The major fear is, you know, that men will be falsely accused, which is the major fear with regard to rape, um, which is really interesting, considering that that's not actually a thing that uh, false accusation uh, statistics for rape is uh, around, it hovers around two or 3%. The highest I've seen is 10%. And that is probably inflated because anytime a police officer closes a case and just decides that the woman's lying, it can be coded as being a false accusation. Um, but anyway, the, the idea that women lie about being raped is, is uh, a rape myth. It is not true. Um, but there's this fear, right? There's this very large fear um, that uh, that women lie about these kinds of things and that they're going to falsely accuse men. And I've actually seen it being called the Me Too movement being called a witch hunt, which is frankly disgusting because the whole idea of a witch hunt is that it was used to silence women and to turn it around on women and saying their words are hurting men. Uh, when they tell their stories is, is very offensive. Um, so yes, tons of pushback in the United States. There've been push, there's been pushback, um, in, uh, these other countries as well. Um, in fact, the, the initial reporting of the, the first, like the, what they call Finland's Harvey Weinstein, which is, uh, uh, Tommy Lohronen. Uh, he's a big director, producer, and, and the initial reports that were being put forth, um, were not believed. Um, and there's been similar things going on uh, in the other countries as well. What's interesting, and this is both in the United States and I've seen it in Finland too, is that these men are um, threatening and actually suing for defamation uh, for their accusers. Um, and the difference is is that in Finland, uh, 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 Tomi Metsäkettö, 
uh, the other person that was called out um, in the, their Me Too movement um, sued the women that accused him of, you know, basically being har- a harasser. Um, he sued them for defamation and he won. So they actually had to pay fees. They had to pay fines uh, to him for accusing him of uh, being known as a, a harasser. That case would not fly in the United States. Our defamation standards are very different. There is no um, truth defense in Finland. It doesn't matter. So in the United States, defamation, if, the, if what you say is true, there can be no defamation. That is not the case in Finland. Um, even if it's true, you can be convicted because it can be criminal as well, um, or you can have to pay fees uh, for defaming someone. Mm. Well, that's I mean, that's really fascinating because yeah. I mean, as you, as you said earlier, like part of the problem in the United States is concerns about well, what about my free speech, and mm-hmm. you know, is this kind of sexually harassing speech also a form of free speech? And it sounds like, in a sense, they almost have like the opposite problem mm-hmm. in in Finland, where it's like the the kind of it's being turned back against the people who want to tell, who, who kind of want to use me to, to acknowledge the sort of unhappy truth yeah. about, about miso- like miso- embedded misogyny in the culture mm-hmm. um, that people don't want to acknowledge. That's right. That's exactly right. So, you know, it's one thing to just say, you know, hashtag me too. No one's getting in trouble for that. But when they start, when women start naming names, um, they have they open themselves up to retaliation, the very thing they fear, and it's still uh, it's still available. Um, and even if they the the lawsuit has no chance of success, just being sued is incredibly expensive and stressful. Um, and you know there is a, a history of you know what we call slap litigation, and I have not seen anything any kind of anti-slap. Um, laws being invoked in any of these cases yet they're still pretty new um, but I would definitely be interested to see if that's an option because they, I do think that these defamation lawsuits are being used to silence um, these these accusers mm. well I know this project is still in progress but mm. I wonder if you have any kind of initial thoughts or findings based on your research in Europe that we might take in thinking about sort of how Me Too has unfolded in the United States and how to make some of its kind of policy goals more achievable here? So, I mean, I don't have great news so far because, you know, it's still a problem in all of these countries. There is no country that got it right that I've even found. So we don't have a model of, you know, oh, look what they did. It's great. Let's just do that. Uh, One thing I I am happy about is, at least in Finland, that it did make its way into the law really quickly, that, you know, it was, uh, you know, part of a debate in in their parliament, and they were very quickly changed the law. Um, And all of these other countries, actually, um, that I've I've mentioned, Finland, Portugal, and Germany, all have street harassment laws that the United States does not have. And they're problematic. These laws are not perfect. But I think one of the things that maybe the United States can learn um, is that we should not be putting such a, a value on this kind of speech, that harassing speech um, is, is an act. 
it is a, an action against women. It is meant to silence. It is meant to put them in their place and keep them out of, you know, certain places and public places. Um, but, you know, the very streets that women feel like they can't walk down without being harassed. It's keeping them out of certain industries where they get harassed online for expressing their opinions. Um, so the, the fact that those, that the freedom of expression is not an issue in those countries have made them a more able to respond legally um, to these issues that the United States has, you know, had, it hasn't been able to. Um, and, and I value freedom of expression, but um, I think that we, maybe Me Too movement, it's not that we haven't gone far enough, right? Maybe that's the issue because we feel overly protective of this low value, or I would say no value speech. Um, and maybe we need to look at that and figure out a way to protect women um, that can still, you know, protect speech when it deserves to be protected. Mm. Well, so Joanne, changing gears, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Fulbright program uh, that you used to do this research. Sort of what was the process of getting a Fulbright like? And do you have any recommendations or thoughts for other academics, especially law professors, who might be interested in applying for similar programs? Absolutely. Um, I, I loved my experience. Um, so the process of the, doing a Fulbright is, well, you first have to choose if you're going to do a research exchange, a teaching exchange, or like a combo. And they have a website, um, I think it's just CIE.com, um, where you can look at all the available grants um, and see what countries are, um, you know, uh, are offering different things. And they will, each grant will specify, some of them have certain like subject matters. So law is a subject matter. Um, some of them are just open though. They just, they don't care. Just come on over. Um, and I, I highly, I have to say, I highly recommend Finland. Finland is really, really good at Fulbright's. They take a lot of pride in it. They um, will love to tell you that they are the only country that has paid back the Marshall Plan. And because of that, because the Fulbright program is part of the Marshall Plan, Finland has its own line of funding um, because they're not part of this larger group. So most countries, um, there's two parts. So I'm going to back up. There are two parts to applying for a Fulbright um, is one, you have to submit a proposal for a project. And that could be what classes you're going to teach if you're doing a teaching one, or it could be your research project. And so once that's approved, their second phase is to see if there's funding. Now, depending on what country accepts you, um, their uh, funding is pooled with other countries in that region. And you may get the your project approved, but not get funding. And that is not an issue in Finland. If they put out a call for, a, for an award, they're going to fund it uh, because they have their own set source of funding. So, um, and they're just, they just put together an amazing program. The support there was fantastic. Um, we had training that was very cool. They took us on excursions. Um, they did a special like Arctic, uh, excursion where they, uh, everyone went to Olu and they got to see the Northern Lights. And I say they, because I didn't get to go for other reasons. And I'm mad that I didn't get to see the Northern Lights. I'm going to take that with me till the day I die, um, that I didn't get to see them. Um, but, um, it's a really cool program. If you're doing teaching, you teach in English. 
So you don't even need to know that speak the language. I do not speak Finnish. I was there for four months and I do not speak Finnish now. It is an extremely difficult language, um, but it didn't matter. Um, I was I taught uh, uh, some Finnish students. Everyone there speaks English. Um, I taught Finnish and uh, Erasmus students, so students from Europe and actually students from all over the world. I had a student from Bangladesh and I had a student from Mexico, which was very cool because I was teaching comparative constitutional law. And it was very cool to talk to them about their own countries. Um, it's a really great program. It, it was you know, I did some comparative work in the past because I did my PhD in England, but I kind of, it's hard to do it when you're not there. Um, and going to these countries and talking to people about, you know, their experiences and, and getting help, finding sources even, um, was so invaluable um, that I, you know, I couldn't have done this work without it. Um, so one of the women that works in, I was in Torku, I was at the University of Torku, and she um, does work in, you know, feminism in Finland. And I was looking into their street harassment law and she literally sent me the debates translated into English for me. You know, I can't get that on Google. And that's all I have when I'm here. So <laughs> it was fantastic. And if you have any interest in doing comparative work at all, um, highly recommend the Fulbright. It's a fantastic program. And I it was uh, I did it on my sabbatical and it was just absolutely amazing. And if anyone wants advice, I will give tons of very targeted, specific advice. Um, and I'm happy to share my proposal that I sent that was successful. If that would be helpful to anybody, um, I'm willing to do it. <laughs> amazing. Well, you've, you've convinced me. I'm going to have to try for a Fulbright myself. Do it. You will not regret it. It is a, like, you know, one of those life-changing experiences. It was just amazing being, you know, seeing academia in another country. And, and Finland itself is a very quiet country. Um, and it was very peaceful. And, and I got to take my family. My husband and my son went. My son went to, um, was in daycare, in an English-speaking daycare in, in Turku. Um, and he can count to 20 and finish now, uh, which is kind of cool. And, uh, it was just great for all of us. Mm, Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Joanne, um, and talking about your amazing project and the experience of putting together the, the research program. And, uh, I look forward to reading the article when it's done. Thank you. I really appreciate it. When the Constitution of the United States was written nearly 200 years ago, even the men who conceived this great system of self-government didn't believe that it was the very last word. The Founding Fathers, in their wisdom, knew that freedom is a living, evolving process. New knowledge, new conditions, new concepts would require change. It's not easy to change our Constitution, but it can be done, as it has been done 25 times. After the Civil War, Congress passed the 15th Amendment to give freed slaves the right to vote. And that was when the voice of Susan B. Anthony was first heard. Why can't women vote, she asked. Until then, 
It simply hadn't occurred to the world that women should be given the same rights as men. Centuries of civilization upheld the notion that women were inferior beings. It was bound to be a long fight for Susan B. Anthony and those who came after her, brave women like Carrie Chapman Catt, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Lucy Stone. These women not only spoke up for women's suffrage, they tried to cast ballots at every election, and invariably they were arrested. Each time they got publicity, but it was mostly bad publicity. The suffragettes, as they were called, were ridiculed by nearly all their fellow Americans. Women as well as men jeered and laughed as the vote-seeking crusaders tried to join in parades, made speeches on street corners, carried signs at public events, and sought audiences with public officials to press their plea. Strangely enough, the suffragettes even had difficulty in enlisting women in support of their cause. Because they wanted to do something that had previously been done only by men, they were depicted in cartoons as having masculine characteristics, and for a while they became social outcasts. But gradually, they convinced America that equality was meant for everyone. And their long campaign came to an end in 1919 with the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. It had been a 50-year struggle to produce a better America, one in which a few determined American women had written another patriotic chapter in the history of freedom. Today, for this, they are honored and respected, not only in our history books, but in the hearts of all Americans.